Jonathan Blow is a designer, programmer, and thinker who made a name for himself with his work on Braid and later The Witness. With his company Thecla, he is working on a new programming language which many perceive to be a true successor to C, and within which his future games are being written. Jonathan, welcome to the No Frauds Club. Uh, I wanted to start this question off with an easy one. What specific tasks have you been working on lately regarding your games or your software? Where's your designer headspace at? Oh, there's so many specific tasks. I don't even know where to start because okay. um, I'm working on three different projects at once, right? Two of them are games and one of them is a programming language. Right. And that's only really three. It's only, only three projects if you consider like a substantial game engine and the game as just being one project, right? Whereas these days, most, pe most people who want to make a game would use like a prefabricated engine and then, so so maybe it's four projects because the engine itself is right. like a whole thing. I don't know. Uh, what have I, but but to get very specific, what have I been doing? Um, sometimes I forget because it goes, so the, the last thing I did last night, I was working on some camera stuff earlier this week for this puzzle game and I made a really dumb mistake and I broke I broke the ability to edit certain kinds of levels that use certain kind of cameras and I got an email about this and I was like, whoops. So I went in and fixed that, uh, which was like, you know, one if statement to, you know, don't call this code that I wrote if you're in a certain kind of level, right? Okay. Um, let me see if I could think of stuff that's more interesting. Um, you know, one thing that I've been doing uh, fairly frequently recently is shipping. Um, so, so we have a bunch of beta users for the compiler. It's a closed beta where there's just like an email list and Discord server where people talk about it and stuff. And there's about... 125 people signed up. I'd like slowly add people over time. Um, I don't know how many of those people are actively participating, but you know, it's enough because we don't take metrics or anything, but it's like, it's enough to, you know, see people talk about interesting things and see the interesting projects that they're working on and stuff. And so I ship betas to that community, you know, pretty often to keep the pace of development of the compiler up. And the last one of those that I shipped was a couple days ago. And um, I could actually look at the change log, but the biggest thing, um, the biggest thing in it was sort of a, an immediate mode UI library that I was writing because part of the idea is, you know, so, so if you go back to the C days, mm -hmm. right? What kind of code shipped with the compiler? It was like standard io.h or something. In the earliest days of C, I'm sure it wasn't even that, right? I'm sure it was just like, here's how you do a few small things on whatever operating system you're on, right? Um, but like, that's not really, like if you want to write a program, it's not really what you want most of the time. I mean, you want that functionality. You want to be able to like open a file and read a file. But like, if I'm just thinking I want to write a program, it's like, okay, I want to open a window and put stuff on the screen. Or maybe it's a command line program, but in that case, maybe I want to do higher level file stuff than like, read a line of a file at a time, right? So um, it's just uh, part of what's been interesting has been building out that kind of stuff uh, in the standard. Uh, it's not really, I shouldn't say standard. I'm using that terminology because it's like the historical terminology, but like in the code that we give out with the compiler, um, I'm writing the kind of stuff that we want, right? And, and then 
you know, trying to make it usable enough and nice enough that other people want to use it. And the hope is that that gives people a high baseline of functionality to start from. And so uh, I was doing an immediate mode UI library, which is, you know, buttons and sliders and all these kinds of things. And part of, you know, this is one of these topics that people get interested in online, like, oh, I'm making my game. Oh, I'm going to do an MGUI library or something. And people have a lot of misconceptions about what the drawbacks are of doing things that way or like what they can and can't do. And those misconceptions are easy to have. I'm not blaming anyone, but I was like, okay, let me just, let me make some code that's useful to people. And that also does a high quality version of this, uh, which was also interesting to me because I've always intentionally done the low quality version of it. Like, um, so similar you to know, developer art, I'm guessing, right? To what? Similar to developer art, right? Developer artwork? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's more like, hey, uh, we're going to make this game, and, well, so we need an editor for the game. So you need to be able to control things in the editor. So here's some buttons. And, like, what's the minimum amount of work that I could get yes. away with to draw buttons on the screen, right? Because I don't want to rat hole on it and focus on the game. That strategy is a mistake sometimes, because for Braid, for example... Dude, I definitely underinvested in that editor back in the day, and development would have gone better, you know, if I had put more work in. But it's hard to know at the time what's the appropriate amount of work. Anyway, so uh, that was one of the big things. But I went, I went to the change log and looked at it for the last beta. Um, um, I was just fixing some bugs in in some of the higher level features of the language. Um, yeah, uh, but it was mostly like user level code kind of stuff. Definitely in the thick of it then you could say, like you're very much on the day-to-day -day still working on the, if that was a project, your daily driver, so to speak, that's sort of your day-to-day your -day focus is the right now the user level stuff, but also anything specific related to the games besides the, the if um, statement you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I bounce around between projects, right? So So for that project, like you would think, okay, so so the new game that we're making is in this programming language. So you might think that what I'm doing from day to day in the language is very related to what we're actually doing on the game, but that's not really how it works out these days because the language has actually been usable in some form, you know, since like 2015 and it's yes. just been getting like better. So it's had like enough features to do a game for almost the entirety of its existence, right? And so... Like I'm doing work on the game, but it's more like, you know, hey, I designed the movement system, which is really tricky for this puzzle game. And, um, you know, there's a couple of challenges, which is one, making sure it does all the puzzle rules that we want correctly, which is actually kind of challenging given the rule set that we have. And another one is, um, okay, so the first is correct, and then second is like feeling good and not looking broken. And you know, how do you queue up good animations at the right times when things are happening? And so I do that kind of thing on the game a lot. I actually want to get back to designing more levels. It's a game that has levels, and uh, I haven't done that in a while. So I'm hoping during Christmas I can carve out some time just to do that. Yeah, well, that rings true to me personally, because I come from a real-time strategy game background, uh, specifically 
essentially came up modding Brood War. So the OG RTS that was like essentially is competing with Command and Conquer, but for the most part, especially if you were interested in esports at the time, like that was the go-to game, right? So yeah. when I started out initially, I was just trying to make custom campaigns, like single player or cooperative missions again, where you'd face off against AI. Eventually that, you know, spiraled out to, well, I want to make some changes to the game state. So let me modify that. And, you know, a lot of modders, I imagine, can eventually go on to become fully fledged game designers themselves, which is the path I'm currently on. But one mm -hmm. of the things that I kept, I always think about is, you know, I'm, I'm building this world and I'm, I'm adding, populating it with these races or these alien creatures or whatever might be in the, in the thick of it. And, it's also that I can create levels and, you know, sort of impart what I've, what I've always wanted in, into a single player experience or a cooperative experience or something. And, you know, I think it's easy pretty much in any capacity, if you're working on a game, there's so much to do if you're in a part of a small team or you're even mostly a solo designer that you can go away from what you really like about it. So I guess then my natural follow-up question to that is, is is making the level is the act of making the level is that really what pulls you towards a lot of these situations or i mean is is that only valuable once you create the rule set so that you can then move on to building a, a satisfying level what's your take on that well i mean i really like programming and i really like designing games and uh historically i was m much more of a programmer before right. i was ever a designer so um so they're both interesting and I would say that by volume of work, I do a lot more programming than design. Um, even though I guess to the extent that I'm known in video games, people think of me as a designer probably m more than a programmer or something, but um, just programming is hard and takes a lot of work. So yes. it's, it's the, the majority of what I do. Uh, fortunately, I do like it. Um, I, I do wonder what would happen. Like, you know, there's there's just this question, like, what what do you spend your time on in life? And and those are the things that you get better at and stuff. And, like, I kind of wonder what would happen if I spent more time on design. Um, and I don't know. Um, it, might be a, it might be a good thing. It might not help beyond a certain amount, because maybe I'm thinking about design in the back of my head all the time. Um, But I do enjoy, you know, I do enjoy designing levels too. It's just like with anything in games, um, sometimes that goes really well and it's amazing. And sometimes it's really hard and things aren't coming out well. And it's not actually that enjoyable, like in the moment, because like I'm trying to build things and they are kind of terrible and I'm just like, oh, I don't like this. Right. But part of making good things, I think an important part of making good things, it's a little bit, or it's extremely underrated in in current day society is being having a critical eye for the, the things that you're making, right? And assessing, you know, are these things of, of an appropriate quality, right? Do, do these live up to the standard of what I'm trying to create? And that's why it's not fun sometimes, right? Yes. But it's also what enables it to be a peak experience, you know, in the end when you succeed, I think, you know, assuming that that happens because, you actually succeeded at something really good. Like I've, I've met people who, uh, they have a different kind of personality and they're just like, they're happy about anything that they do. Like, Oh, that's great. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, whatever. And, um, I mean, 
That's that's fine, but I don't I don't think that that person is going to design games that I really want to play. For example, right? right because yeah. the the quality just ends up not being there. Like to make sure that the quality is there, you have to make sure that the quality is there, right? Yes, I think a lot of that comes from I would describe it as ruthless introspection in the sense that you have to look inward, and a lot of the times, you know, your your prism, your design prism that you're looking through has to. Yeah. grow outward and you have to have consumed enough things to and even have a baseline or maybe there's a way around that but i imagine that a large portion of the way that like you get an instant leg up societally is just consuming a certain amount of you know movies and film and, and games and then that bleeds into your general baseline understanding which you can then look inward and try to identify weaknesses within and you i, I liken it to like there's the I don't know if it's an idiom or not, but when you're combing with a fine tooth comb, you're, you're sort of scrolling through something, uh, trying to really get as close as possible. You can see all the imperfections and then you can maybe scale back and, and see what you can fix. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, I was listening to a number of your other interviews. One of the things that you, that comes up every now and then is you talk about, for example, the witness where a game you worked thousands and thousands, like uncountable numbers of hours on, and then people play it for maybe 40 or even, say the, uh, somebody really plays it over and over again, they get to like 500 hours or something. That's still like an, a tiny fraction compared to what you've done with the game uh, and still a, per, a potentially valuable perspective, but you're not going to get the same thing out of talking to them about the witness as you would, as somebody would talking to you, obviously. And yet still a lot of the time, you know, that's that, that enters into the whole topic of game reviews, for example, or something to that effect, where a lot of the time that's for the people who are just looking for something to maybe occupy their time for a couple hours, or it maybe indeed challenge them, although that is getting rarer. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, I did want to ask you about elements of the current projects you're working with that you love enough to maintain your long-term commitment to those particular projects. Like uh, I've heard you say before that the, like one of the main ways that you can survive a project just as any, like the you in a vacuum, right? Like any designer out there, if you can pick some things that you really love about whatever you're working on, then that will be, that, that'll go a long way towards making sure you sail into the finish line, right? And actually complete a project. And I come from a background where for a long, long time, maybe over a decade, I didn't finish anything. Even these like little, I would describe as, you know, uh, quite pejoratively, these little dinky mods I was working on, right? Like those things didn't even get finished until after a certain point, I like matured enough and I was able to figure out what the weakness was. And, and I was also able to, you know, find something that was both quality enough and also achievable within my constraints that I could build. So it was like some weird Goldilocks zone, whereas either I was working on stuff that was not actually something I loved or it was something I loved, but I couldn't do because of my skills or because of the environment. So what, what are some examples of things that you really love about what you're working with that uh, are still reminding you of their existence every now and then? Well, so with the puzzle game, uh, for example, um, part of the goal of the puzzle game, and this is also what makes it hard to work on and take a long time, but part of the goal is to, um, is to just be an example of what games can do in terms of complexity of ideas. Like, you know, and it, a very simple thing that game designs are pretty good at doing is like, here's idea A and here's idea B. And then we put them in some space where things can happen and you can see how idea A interacts with idea B and generates uh, both um, some some terrain in like decision space about like what's a good idea to do and what's not, but also generates some kind of surprise in those kind of ideas. Like, oh, I wouldn't have imagined that this certain kind of thing could happen, but it does happen. And 
Therefore, my appreciation of the game should take that into account. Anyway, so that's a thing that games do generally. And in this game, uh, it's just a focus on um, just looking at that, like both just appreciating that as a basic mechanism and then just seeing how big we could like blow it up into like a massive complex thing and still have it be, um, you know, playable and good and, and not a giant spaghetti mess of like, what is this thing? Right. Um, and that's really interesting. And it pushes at the edges of my understanding of like what games are and how they work. And so it feels like a good thing to do. Um, that said, like I, I get questions from people all the time about like, how do you, how do you finish these projects? Right. And, you know, I mean, I do pretty long projects and I would like to figure out how to make them go faster. Right. Um, but, um, usually people asking these questions, you know, they're talking about how do you, how do you stay working on something for like six months even or something? Because, yes. you know, and I don't know. I mean, for me, like, like it sounded for you, like you just got to a point where you started being ready to finish stuff. And that's kind of how it was for me too. Like I, I used to just do a bunch of projects and they, you know, they would seem like they weren't working and I would go do something else eventually. And, um, I'm not sure that that's bad. Like I do think to make really good things, one has to get to a point where the things are being finished at least, you know, to a reasonable degree. But Part of something being worth finishing is that it was a good enough idea to spend the time on in the first place. And and there's some part of the early process that's maybe about just figuring out what ideas are good or refining your ability to have good ideas um, or to know, to know where, you know, maybe you have an idea in the beginning that's exciting and then you get the basic concept down, but like, it's still not there enough to really work and be good. And it's like, where do I go from here? And you just like, don't know. Right. Well, there probably is, there probably are lots of places that you could take that if you just knew the magic, the magic things to do. And there's something about learning how to do that and like teaching your mind, like how to see the things. And, um, I don't know, maybe at some point that just happens after enough exposure. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I mean, in my personal journey, it was, uh, I think, in my, in my background, I struggled a lot with depressive episodes and eventually realized, I mean, there was, I think a part of it was discovering some people, uh, some speakers online that, although this makes it sound like it was some self-help gurus or anything, but it was just some, some people, mostly on YouTube, that I discovered that clued me into certain philosophies. I think Stoicism was one that I, I don't know that much about in its etymology, but I know the modern interpretation of it, uh, at least the one that I'm familiar with, is essentially just trying to accept what you can change uh, or what you can't change and then work around it and then like figure out what you can change, which can actually elevate your life and improve things. And at some point that allowed me to sort enough of the rest of my life out that I could eventually finish a project. So I think some of that comes with natural experience. And then other of it was the luck of the dice, uh, YouTube algorithm recommendation or whatever. And unfortunately that seems to be how a lot of people get uh, developments in their life. Uh, but Perhaps that's uh, something we could talk about a little bit later on in this interview. Because one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is uh, one of the things you said there is figuring out when a project is actually worth finishing, in essence, right? Is, is 
the reason a project would be worth finishing, the reason why you should invest time into finding the magical solution to the open-ended, ambiguous nature of middle project development would be, does it grab you? Does it excite you? Does it make you want to finish it in that sense? And um, developing projects that are, are essentially worth finishing. So like one of the things that I've noticed as I've really become more introspective about my design process is that for a long time, like there's, it's almost like there was an awakening at some point and I looked back at literally everything I had made and I thought, wow, that's really embarrassing and I should definitely do better. And that has slowly changed and maybe not so slowly, actually, just over the course of a few years uh, to me not being able to poke as many holes in the things that I would create or if I, I would really have to change like an entire paradigm in order to discover something that was wrong or something to that effect. Like I could see where's areas where you could retool it and improve it, but I couldn't really see like holistic structural issues unless I stepped completely outside of my design space. And so that made me think that either I was reaching sort of like the edge of, of my personal competency, which kind of can, you know, concern me because I was looking to try to like improve forever basically uh, at the time. And the, the other option was that maybe this is just as good as it can be unless I change my, the actual paradigm that I'm looking through. So the roundabout question I'm getting at here is like, do you, do you think that at some point, well, I'll start by asking you a more personal question. Are, are there things that you've made within somewhat recent, maybe the last 10, 20 years that like you would look back and say, and, and it, not just like say, oh, I could definitely do better. But like that, that embarrassment that I spoke of kind of creeps up where you're almost, uh, almost a little bit like uneasy remembering that like that your name is attached to that. Is, is there anything like that or does that speak? No, to there isn't. Have... No, yeah. there's nothing like that. I mean, if you, if you go really far back in the past, there probably is like, you know, but mm -hmm. we're talking about many decades. Right. right? Um, I will say like, there are definitely things uh, in both braid and the witness, for example, that I wish I had done better. Right. Sure. There are, there are sub sub pieces of the game where it's like, yeah, I, you know, that was unfortunate. Um, but even if I were to go back and do the, try to do those better now, it like, it's not like I really exactly know what I should have done that would have been perfect or something. It's just like, well, given more time, I might go back and, and try to figure those out. And I'm sure there is something better to do and maybe, maybe I would find it. But, you know, the thing is, it, those things don't bother me too much because what each of those projects were about was like on, um, you know, they were about something more complex that was about how all the elements of the thing hold together and relate to each other and that sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, there's a way in which that survives a couple things not not being um you know optimal or or the best or something and so it doesn't actually and but you know because as you said before because I actually spent so much time working on these things and like lived through that process and I know how hard it was yes to like even get to what we had it's like yeah you know um it's uh, like we did pretty good, actually, right? Like I don't, I, there's no reason to feel embarrassed or feel bad about it, right? Um, what I will say though uh, is, I mean, I can, I can look at anything that I've done and I could see, you know, I can see definitely things that I wish were better. Like, oh, this obviously could be better in the following way. 
And I can also see lots of ways in which maybe it could be better, but I don't know because I would have to go try it and that would be a big exploration and it's vague to like see where that would end up. Um, but I'm not like, I, so I know that, well, it, it's very clear to look at any of the things that I've done and see, yeah, they're certainly not like absolutely perfect by any means, right? They, they have problems, but interestingly, those problems are like not what, you know, like if you go, go read like a Metacritic review of one of the games on there, it's like, I don't care about any of the stuff they're talking about. Right. Sure, so, yeah. um, so it's, it's just on a different axis than, than what a lot of people perceive, um, or are thinking about. Um, yeah, I don't know. On a very brief tangent off of that subject, I do have a general question that basically just fielding a perspective by you that uh, is not entirely shared by myself, but I'm curious about people's takes on it. So as an established designer, I mean, there's this uh, adage that like where there's software, there's bugs basically. And especially in 3D games, I've noticed that there's, I, th I think it's been creeping up more and more, but I also haven't played every 3D game, obviously. So I can't say for certain. It does feel like there's a lot of, for example, like just minor in, in the grand scheme of things, graphical issues, like maybe Z fighting or clipping or something to that effect. It does seem like every game that I've ever played has had clipping, like really obvious in your face clipping at some point or another. Like you could think of maybe even the older like Halo games where maybe Master Chief's helmet sticks into his shoulder at some point in an animation or whatever. Um, those are ironically enough, like there are, there does exist a corner of the internet uh, where I think maybe people quickly condemn the developer for any time that something like that happens. Whereas I, I see it more as like a sign of maybe like a pervasive time crunch or uh, in the case of larger teams, it's like it feels it becomes more unforgivable almost, in my opinion, because of the fact that you're dealing with something where there's so many people who would have had to see that and it's still shipped to the player. But like, what's your take on essentially some of these trivial issues? Do they when you play a game that has some of these, do they speak to you as like a, do they show you anything useful that you can take away as like a maybe reading between the lines of how development must have gone or what the developer must have cared about or not cared about? Like, does that does that register for you at all? Or do you just sort of like skip and, and move on? I think, I think there are three, at least three different categories of thing. Okay. Right? And the, I don't know the, the, like you mentioned like, Oh, master chief is like doing some animation or something and something glitches out. That feels like a, a middle one. Okay. So, so let's just say there's, um, there's really bad bugs in games. Like, you know, my gameplay is ruined by this yes. bug in some way, right? Um, there's like medium bugs, which I think is like the kind of thing that you just said, where it's like, okay, if this animation glitches out, it probably doesn't wreck my game. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's like hitboxes attached to the animation sure, and yeah. people learned it. But, but, you know, usually you can imagine lots of things where it's like, okay, um, this obviously isn't supposed to be this way, uh, but, you know, clearly you could still play the game and it's okay. It's just kind of like, you know, the illusion of this being an amazing, you know, wonderfully put together thing is kind of shattered by this problem. Right. right? And then there, there's a third category of thing, which is just, um, you could imagine it being better, but 
it was intentionally chosen to be out of scope of what designers were doing. And so it's not even really a bug. It's just, it just is what it is. And so an example of that, I'm not sure what a modern example of that would have been, but, but like back in the earlier days of 3d games, for example, like, uh, it was just hard to do certain kinds of graphical effects in 3D or, you know, so if something looks wrong, it was just like, well, we just can't do that, <laughs> right? Maybe a perspective and, or something. I'm thinking of like the old well, Quake games it, or something to that effect. Like like in software rendered games yeah. that, that would like try to sort from back to front, sometimes the sorting couldn't have been done very well without you know, some kind of expensive process that happens every frame that computers are fast enough to do today, but we're not fast enough to do back then. Right. And so it was just an intentional choice to be like, well, we're, we're just not doing that. Right. Um, which doesn't mean that that system can't be better because there were systems that didn't have that problem. It's just that then those systems necessitated other game designs in some, sometimes. So, you know, these things are complex, but I don't, you know, I think most bugs today, or category two or, or three, um, where I said them in reverse order, I guess. Uh, but um, the ones that really bother me are not are not the cosmetic glitches. They're the ones where things just don't really work right. correctly. And I think, you know, it's my impression that those are getting worse over time. And both higher in number and worse in magnitude when you see them. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like they contribute to a growing sense that either, and maybe both of this is, these are true, but I like at least one of these must be true, which is either uh, video game studios, like development studios, are less engaged or caring or careful, maybe, with their product, or, and or, the, like, games are just getting ballooned out of proportion in terms of how difficult they are to make at a high enough level with a, enough of a budget and with all of the financial systems that are in place. Um, so it feels like both, of, both of those to some degree are true. And historically I've been someone who has maybe cited a little bit more on the, the like if, if there's a fence or a line and on the left of the line is developers are lazy and the right of the line is developers are facing an ever growing, slightly insurmountable, perhaps amount of challenges that are contributing to the fact that their product is low quality. I was more on the side of pointing out where it seemed obvious that there was a lack of care and lack of perhaps laziness and you could attribute that. And I'm not, you know, the more I look back over the years, I'm not sure how fair that is, but at the same time, I also am sympathetic to the idea that I'm a consumer. And if I'm, if I'm the average video game consumer, I've been underserved and it feels almost like I've not, I've been conditioned to accept being underserved by the the companies and the developers or more specifically perhaps the publishers i'm not sure you might have more inf insight on that one but like yeah go ahead well okay so on the one hand okay so it is true what you are saying that quality is quite low sometimes and that you know people are paying money for games that are not that are not um as good as they have the right to expect in, in, in the quality access, right? And I do think that I do think that this is something that both the audience for games and the people making games should be concerned about and possibly more concerned about even than they are. Um, I do know that developers are lazy is is a, a trope or an explanation for this. It's really not true. Um, 
I mean, it's, once in a while you get a studio that just like poops a game out or something, but that's really not like, okay, you know, so, so like yesterday I was playing Battlefield 2042, right? Okay. That game is full of bugs. It's horrible, like quality wise. Okay. But I guarantee you they worked hard on it as well. It feels um, like you, they have to have in order to achieve the scale and like to have the number of assets even ported into whatever engine they're using. I, I, it might yeah. be the, the dice engine or whatever, but you, you simply cannot release something like that without working very hard. Right. Yeah. And so the explanation is something else. Right. And the explanation is something like the situation that we've built makes it basically impossible to release a high quality project. Right now. Okay. Well, if you want to solve this problem, you have to then actually start looking at it very carefully, right? Because if, if, if you misdiagnose something, then it becomes very hard to solve because you start doing the wrong solution and then, you know, all the effort that would be going into the right solution goes the wrong place. Um, and well, the, the diagnosis is actually very complicated, right? And there's, so the things that you mentioned earlier, uh, are, are part of the problem. Um, Part of the problem is just legit. Part of it is just games are getting more and more complicated over time. It just gets harder to do that, right? And and um, that said, we've been getting better at making games too. So we should be able to offset some of that. But I do think that the complexity of games is rising faster than our ability to make them. But that's actually not... Um... Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is part of the problem. Um, and then part of the problem is we're not respecting that enough and taking the steps that would be appropriate when faced with that problem, right? And I, I don't exactly know what that would be, but like sitting down and saying, look, you look at this arc of how games have gotten more complex over time and here's what happens and what do we, what do, we do, right? Nobody, nobody does that. <laughs> um, everybody just sits down and tries to make an individual game and like, hits their head against the wall as hard as possible, right? And so one of the things I'm trying to do with making a programming language, right, is take a step back and say, I can't solve all of this, but I can try to address one of the things that's being a problem. And so here's my best attempt at that, right? Um, now, part of it is, is simpler than that and more solvable, but people still don't seem willing or interesting enough to solve it again, because the incentives are misaligned. So like just you have a lot of these games now, especially the bigger the game is, the more code there is behind the game. And so you take a big franchise like, you know, Battlefield or Assassin's Creed or something. And I don't actually know the numbers for those games lately, but you know, there's 10 to 40 million lines of code. If you include the, the runtime and all the tools that people use to build the content and all this stuff, right? And which matters, you know, a, a player doesn't have the the mesh processing tools shipped to them, but how good those tools are and how well they work determines how smoothly the workflow goes, how quickly they can produce the assets, how fast they can iterate and solve some of these problems that you're talking about, right? And so it's actually very important during development that those things be high quality and not have problems because that the quality or lack thereof shows up in the end product, right? Um, like, you know, if you could have produced animations three times faster, then you would have had much more time left over to notice that one where the Master Chief's head glitches through his shoulder or whatever, yes. right? Um, so 
so the problem is, A, that code has been piling up for years and nobody understands it all and everybody's afraid of certain parts of it, right? Um, and then even if you're not exactly afraid, there's like, oh, if we go change the way some particular piece of it works, that could be very costly in terms of, in terms of time and we're on a schedule and all this stuff, right? And then, you know, it, what, this code's been around long enough that like the people who wrote it have like left or left the industry or left to another company or whatever several times over. Right. And so you have this thing, you have this technical asset that people are trying to like manage that, um, is growing more complicated every, cause people just add code, right? It is the problem with code, right? And it's not just in games and across all of software. Yes. The problem is like, we just think it's okay to add code all the time. Um, we have no, like, I think this concept existed in the olden days and people just forgot it because computers got a lot faster, but like people don't have any shame or doubt about adding more code to a system that exists. And it's like, well, are, are you sure about that? Because like, uh, you're adding, you're adding, um, burden over all the rest of the time that this code exists, right? It went from being complexity N to complexity N plus K, right? And then you integrate that over time. And the area under the curve is like how much work has to happen to make this code good. Right. And now, um, you know, if you imagine <laughs> people who'd done calculus in high school, if you imagine some graph where like, the complexity of code is the y-axis and time is the x-axis. And so the complexity is going up, right, over time. And time is passing. And so the total amount of work that has to be done to maintain this thing, if it goes up just linearly, right, then you're sort of making a triangle. You're sweeping out a triangle, which is like the area there is squared. It's like squared in the length of the side. That's a lot of work, right? And and at least linearly, the amount that you have to do at any moment in time is is going up linearly, right? And so at some point, that's just more work than can be done, right? And where we are right now is we're at a point where it's not impossible to make a game, right? Um, but it is impossible to make a game that doesn't have problems. We're in this intermediate place. Um, eventually, we may get to a place where it's impossible to make a game. And then some changes will be forced, right? Um, but actually, I think what would happen is the definition of make a game sort of changes, you know? Like, because you could take, you know, these days, you couldn't do this back in the start of video games, but these days you could like download Unity or something and like buy off the asset source some plugin that's like, guy runs around a level with boxes, right? And then you move the boxes around and claim that you made a game. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, you did a small amount of stuff, but like, that's not the same as, you know. And so, so one thing that can happen is our ambitions become lower over time in order to cope with the fact that we're not able to do things. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like every time I think about going away from the... Like we've built our own 2D engine and it's specifically designed to work within real-time strategy environments or the scale of game where you would need, I think we we estimate we should be able to support half a million units running around at any given time okay. maximum. And so that's yeah. like a number that is beyond achievable for 
any like for Unreal or for Unity or for any of these other not going to happen. Oh, well, I mean, you might be able to make it happen, but it would be unplayable. And yeah, and specific, since we're trying to support up to 64 players, perhaps, like we don't really know where the back end of that is. Like the, these are very ambitious numbers to throw around, mm -hmm. even even in a casual design talk where I'm sitting down with the engineer and I'm, we're talking about how we're going to put this together. And um, so we needed to make our own stuff in order to even have a chance at claiming we can support these kinds of numbers and maybe the reality will be through our own incompetence or through some other limiting factor that we can't actually meet those numbers but at least we're aiming for them and so that ambition is intact but if i ever were to go back to the environment of you know modding brood war where it's closed source and i've had to memory hack and reverse engineer a bunch of stuff in order to add custom functionality through like injecting plugins at runtime which tri triggers every antivirus known to man and then obviously massively constrains a potential player base for any sort of multiplayer action um, because people aren't going to trust some random exe that they downloaded the also only works on the older version of the game there's a lot of limiting factors so there's all of these things that are like well i guess i have to like really hinder my ambitions and bring them back down to earth and i can't even think about like you know the, the in-game limit is something around 1700 in brood war and you can't fix that without a ridiculous amount of memory hacking which causes instability elsewhere so like the trade-off is if i want my half a million units running around on the screen or in game at all then i need my own thing and most people either aren't equipped to do their own thing, or maybe that's a story they tell themselves, or aren't willing to for some other reason. And as a result, they never allow themselves to even, like you you talked about how eventually the, the definition of make a game is going to change. And I would say it's already changed in a, a first, like a, a triple A term, right? Which I think is a, a it's a, a label I use mostly for convenience because I feel like it's the definition of it is blurred over time. For me, you used to make a game when you released a game, and then if you wanted to follow it up, you would release an expansion pack or maybe a sequel that would be its own game, which would be another thing you made. Now, around like the, I think it was the, might have been the sixth console generation, whichever one was the Xbox 360 and the PS3, um, maybe a little bit before that as well, we had we started seeing more mainstream use of consoles hooked up to the internet, which allowed day one patches and also day one DLC, which felt a lot more like we'll make our game, we'll finish our game later and charge you for it. And mm -hmm. after that, uh, eventually the slow creep of microtransactions started coming in. Also the rise of early access, which is admittedly more for like lower budget games than AAA titles, uh, I think by number or by volume. But yeah. the trend that I'm seeing is that make a game no longer means what it used to mean in say 1994 or 1998 when Brood War came out or even like 2005, um, any, any time before that sixth console generation I was talking about, and maybe the trend of it going away or changing was happening even before then, but that's when I first started to notice that things were very different than what I recalled them being, where you would have to pay maybe 20 US dollars for a map pack uh, that had a couple maps in it for multiplayer, and that's how you were able to, you know, get further up the leaderboard in Gears of War 2 or something. You know, like these are the things that I remember dealing with when I was playing console games back in like 2007, 2008. And then... Mm -hmm. You extrapolate that out now and, well, people are very aggressive with their monetization when it comes to the DLC or the extra packs that they have, or they throw monetization out the window in terms of an upfront purchase, but they try to milk you for, um, you know, skins like in League of Legends, or it might be even in Counter-Strike, which I know you're more familiar with, um, and, and games like that. So this is where I think a lot of the, the more uh, cognizant audience members will... Mm -hmm 
look back at, at their time within games and say, oh, this is where maybe a lot of my misgivings towards the industry started, is when it stopped being about making a game in, in some way and started being more about, okay, well, we can bypass the brick and mortar stores and we can go straight to your downloadable client through console or through Steam or through some other storefront. And so we ignore the cost of like actually distributing the game physically. Uh, so we don't have to make like box art or well, we make box art for promotional purposes. We don't have to make a box. We don't have to ship all that. But that cost w that was saved by the distributor never gets passed on to the consumer, it feels like, like the savings there. And instead, games are still $60 USD and some of them are $70. And then there's some, you know, obviously ranging below that. And so on top of that, there's more aggressive monetization, per like the microtransactions or the DLC, there's more aggressive financial models for a lot of these games. And it's just, it doesn't seem to be going away because now we're getting games like, for example, Genshin Impact. I'm not sure if you're very familiar with it, but it feels... I've vaguely seen it. Okay. I don't it, know much about it. The financial model is essentially the same as the, the iPhone sort of gacha scene with uh, a lot of the sort of like, you know, pay money for energy so that you can keep playing. And mm -hmm. you can technically be a free-to-play player, but it's so inconvenient that, you know, it's very similar to... It's not the same kind of game as Raid Shadow Legends, but it has a similar kind of monetization scheme as Raid Shadow Legends and some of those other games yep. where you're essentially paying for the the privilege to continue playing a game that you probably already bought if you're playing on PC anyway, because I don't believe it's free-to-play. But even if it weren't, like, that's already, a, I would think, a, a massive step down in many consumers' eyes. And yet, obviously, it feels we're in the vocal minority. Would you agree with that sort of sentiment? Or do you have any thoughts on like where, like, is there a way where things will get so bad in the financial front, but also in the game completion front that we were talking about earlier that yeah. like it, it, we'll see a crash or course correction of any kind, or is it just going to keep building in complexity for the developer and like, I guess, a, a annoyance for the end consumer that like eventually people just won't buy games. Like what, what's your prediction for that? I mean, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to say some things here, and I'll say at the outset that nothing that I'm about to say is intended to justify this trend that you're talking about okay. or say that it's good, right? So I agree with everything that you said that games have been going this way. I, I think it's obvious, right? Um, so I'm I'm not I'm not at all trying to justify that thing. In fact, let me just say, like, look, you know, my I, I run a game company, um, and the choice that I made when starting this company was I am starting it in order to make the kinds of games that I want to make that are the most interesting, right? And to me, right? And which hopefully means that there's some players out there who like the same kind of thing, right? Um, and that's going to be the guiding principle, right? And so uh, we're not trying to optimize to make the most money, right? Which is what most companies are trying to do. Um, not by mistake, because as it turns out, if you're not optimizing to make the most money, it's actually kind of hard to stay in business because it's it's actually pretty hard to make money. Um, so we've actually been fortunate to to stay in business this whole time, um, even though you know money is is not why we're here, right? Um, but so if you take for a minute this thing about like, look, people have to stay in business. Um, and you look at the system of incentives that are set up, like how do you stay in business? Well, 
you got to make enough money. How do you make enough money and how much is enough, right? And the, so tied to this question of like technical complexity that's been rising over time that we just talked about is just, you know, game complexity or, or game, um, just the cost of making a game that is, uh, you know, the things we've been talking about so far were relatively major marquee titles of the time, right? So like Gears of War was one of the biggest games of the years that came out, possibly the biggest, right? Um, you know, Brood War, very big game, you know, Genshin Impact, pretty big. I don't know, not the same as those, but uh, like, like we're talking about the games that, that are sort of toward the, the top in terms of volume of the player base. And actually that's not even true for a minute because like if we pause a minute and acknowledge that like Roblox has a, like a zillion players or something, right. Yeah. But that, that's sort of a different thing. So, so if we say this model of there's a well-defined game that we ship you and you're buying that ex play experience yes, and you play it, right. Um, like that has been getting much more expensive to produce and much harder to produce over time. And, you know, part of that is this technical thing that I'm talking about, but part of it isn't. Part of it is just games compete with each other, right? Year after year. And whoever comes out on top is the game that people like the most, roughly. It's not an exact science or anything, but, you know. And so games get more visually impressive over time, right? They have more stuff in them. So they're competing on being impressive and having how, how much stuff. And as that amount of stuff goes up, it's just more expensive to make the game. That's just how that works, right? And so the problem is that once the price tag goes up above a certain point, um, certain kinds of things become less viable, right? And so there's a thing that happened you know, it happened slowly over time, but let's say a pretty clear breaking point was five years ago. And then there was maybe another one 10 years before that. But there's like, there's this phenomenon where it starts out and you have a spectrum of companies making games of all different sizes, right? Like, hey, we're just a little indie and we're people in the middle. We have a mid-sized team and we have like maybe 20% the budget of a AAA game. So we're not competing with them, but we're still making something pretty good. And then you have, you have the people at the highest end, right? And what has happened repeatedly over time is that the middle of that spectrum kind of falls out, right? So if you're, if you're super expensive AAA, you also have a huge marketing budget, right? You're paying to reach people and you also have the most impressive thing in terms of this amount of stuff. So you kind of like win by being the biggest, uh, you know, the big gorilla in the room or whatever, right? Um, and if you're small, if you're really independent, you're more like the little mammal that hides behind the rock when you're in the cave when the meteor hits or whatever. Like, you don't need that much money to get by, yes. so you're okay. But the people in the middle just get wiped out. Like, um, you know, I have a kind of a high budget that we have to find money for somewhere, but it's not a AAA budget, and we're not going to win if we try to advertise next to a AAA game. Everyone's going to pick the AAA game. So what do we? that's just a very hard to make work, right? And so what that dropping out of the middle repeatedly means is that, you know, the high end has been sort of a winner takes all thing for a long time. And it's been competing with itself and getting higher and higher end. And so the problem is, as the budgets go up, you just have to make things work within that budget. You So there's this very, um, 
you know, there's just a system of incentives, like how, okay, this is our budget level because it has to be, because that's how you compete in AAA games. And so once that's our budget level, how do we make that money back? Like what, that's how this thought process goes. And it is entirely a business thought process, right? It's not a creative thought process at all. Um, and the problem is if you are too creative, you'll probably fail. And the problem is if you probably fail with $400 million, nobody's going to give you $400 million again to make a yeah. game. Right. So, so like, it's all very clear why this happens. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it's good, right? I'm just saying that it's clear why it happens. And you could like try to blame developers for like not being creative enough or not doing a good enough job or whatever. But the reality is like, I mean, if you imagine, if you imagine you work at, uh, as an air traffic controller, it's probably mostly done by computers these days, but in the days when the air traffic controllers, it's like, look, there's just planes coming in and you've got to get the planes on the ground. And like, you can't make any choice that you want. You have to make the choices that make the planes come in and, and yes. get on the ground. Right. And, um, you can't like blame the air traffic controller for not being creative enough <laughs> most of the time, right? It's just like not the job description. And so that's what's going on at this very high budget level, right? Um, that said, there are always creative things that could be done. Like there are games that came out that were a little different from what came before that made gazillions of dollars that people who had been optimizing for money prior to that hadn't seen because they weren't being creative enough, right? So like Minecraft did that you know, Fortnite did that uh, a little bit weirdly, right? Um, actually, both of the interesting story, both of those are fast follow, not fast follows, because um, Minecraft wasn't a fast follow. I should explain what that term is. That's a, sure. that's a business term, right? So a fast follow is when somebody else has the idea oh, okay. and they, they put the game out and you look at the game and say, oh, that idea has a lot of potential, but I don't think they did it right. So let's do it better with a higher budget level and whatever and try to get a bunch of people, right? So Minecraft wasn't a fast follow, but it was like, it, you know, it was a version of a game that essentially somebody else had done that hardly anybody played. But, you know, Minecraft was different enough and, and had, it built on the concept and then that was enough to make it like take off, right? Um, and then, you know, Fortnite, uh, like PUBG came out and and was a really interesting game in some ways, but was like horrible in other ways. And Fortnite was just like, let's actually take this idea, but make it like fun and easy to play and higher quality technically and whatever. And and they just took off with it, right? Um, I mean Fortnite also it's pretty different. From, I'm not I'm not like trying to say it's a clone game, but it's like. There are these times when somebody starts something new and often that person is not the person who wins all the money from the new thing, right? Yes. Um, it's just how it works. You know, that's not necessarily good or bad either. I mean, it's, it's fine. Like that process generates new things that end up in the world. It's just the people who started them often don't get very compensated. I, that's not even true in this case. Like PUBG made an okay amount of money. It's just Fortnite made an infinite amount of money. Right? Yes. And there's a, there's a big amount, like pretty good and, and infinite are different in character. Are, um, would you say games and software are unique in how inefficient they are relative to an imagined ceiling? 
or how I don't far know, away. What they is are. the imagined ceiling? Well, for Ooh. example, you're working towards. I'm not sure if it's a ceiling, but a better version, right? With the programming language you're working on, uh, in see. some in some respects. So you yeah. mentioned that, like, obviously, games aren't unique in terms of the infinite complexity that keeps getting heaved upon them, but uh, that that is reflected in software. And before, you know, we've I've I've seen you talk about the uh, fact that the number of programmers employed by Google and Facebook doesn't have anything any seeming bearing on the amount of productivity that those pr programmers appear to have and how that's like an example, I would say, uh, looking at this conversation now, it seems like that's an example of how inefficient software is. And if games are also inefficient in terms of how they're developed and uh, versus how well they could be developed, like I'm trying to get a read on whether or not the people who are interested in the software and games industries are witnessing a unique thing or if this is something you have observed elsewhere in other fields. Because it feels, and it, maybe this is a lack of world experience on my part, but it feels like while I can see some elements of parity between games, software, and other things, it does feel like games and software have this unique component of like so being so far away from what could happen. Uh, there's a, an example, I can't remember exactly which talk you gave, but you opened up Photoshop and it took seven seconds to load an image or maybe even more. And yeah. obviously when you first click on it, the example you gave is that there's an image right there in the loading screen. So clearly it can draw an image. Um, so in like 0.05 seconds or whatever, it's probably not that yeah. fast, but something to that effect. So like the, the breadth between the minimum necessary or even like a more appropriate like minimum that you could say is a reasonable goal. If we want to use some, a bunch of loaded language that we don't really have to define, I would say like, it feels like software and games are so far away from a reasonable minimum expectation. Forget about like the actual perfect ceiling that they could be at that it puts everything else to shame where there is something like that. But maybe you've seen an example or could theorize well, an example. I, I mean, here's the thing, because I program all the time and on things that are quite complicated. Um, so on the one hand, I agree with the general, you know, the broad strokes of what you're saying that like day-to-day -day software that we encounter is pretty far from like what it should be with some quotes around the should. Sure. But the problem is, the problem is that that should is not actually very easy. So like reasonable minimum expectation is not really how I would say it because okay. it's like, it's, it's pretty hard to make this stuff. Like programming is, is really pretty hard. And, um, so what there somehow needs to be is like a respect among programmers that programming is pretty hard and that just cause you can kind of slap some stuff together doesn't mean doesn't mean that like, like there's this thing that happens in programming where like, okay, it kind of works. And so it's fine. And so we ship it. And, and, um, that's, I think that's not okay. And it's becoming increasingly not okay over time. And the more of the world that is run by software, the more of a serious thing it is that none of it freaking works. Right. So, um, I mean, you could think about it this is a little bit different, but it's at least an analogy about why that, oh, it's mostly okay, doesn't maybe make sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you imagine, imagine a really like safety-oriented occupation, right? 
like where you're like some very dangerous construction, like we're moving five ton objects all the time or something. And you have a checklist of things that you go through, like before, before the crane lifts up the giant pallet of I-beams, we go check the straps and we check the buckles and we make sure, I don't know, like there's probably a pretty long list of things that you do. Or like, you know, I don't know, like if you're, you know, a soldier and you're like clearing rooms, you like check all the corners every time. Yes. Even though there's probably not a dude in that corner, right? Because, because the, when there is a dude in that corner, it's a very bad mistake to make, right? And because the mistakes are not usually that bad, in software, we don't do that. We don't check our corners, right? And because um, the problem with checking your corners all the time is it's hard to make rapid progress forward. Um, and what we need to do is figure out how to do both. We need to figure out how to make rapid progress forward while, or more rapid than we otherwise would while actually checking everything and understanding that everything works. And this is actually something that's been, you know, so in academia, this has been a topic of study for decades, probably more, um, just like software correctness, right? How do we prove that programs do what we think they're supposed to do? And, you know, I think that is kind of like string theory or something. I think that has rat hold into a relatively unpromising place right now. Um, maybe somebody will figure something out that'll make these approaches more viable, but right now they're not super viable. Um, but you know, it would be good to figure something out. So my approach, uh, with this programming language is just like, let's at least reduce all these frictions that we have so that, um, you know, if you could increase your productivity by like 20 or 30%, then you could do the same stuff you were doing before, but you would have more time to like look for bugs and stuff with that 20 or 30%. Now that still becomes a choice and many people will choose not to, and they'll just choose to make more, try to make more and have like the same bug level or something. But um, I don't know, it's, it's complex. There's a lot, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, I mean, one of the follow-up questions I was gonna ask you and you started started to get into that was how deep can you go down the, the forum of optimization or cor software correctness without being irresponsible to whatever your end goal was in the first place, right? Well, those are sort of, it's interesting, those are two different things, right? So optimization, okay, optimization is weird. So, so not, not only does most software today not really work very well, it's also tremendously slow, yes. right? It does both of these things at the same time. Now, the problem sort of is that optimization, this is where I have to be careful. So if you have a pretty good program that's already correct and you want it to go faster and it's already a reasonable speed, optimization will probably actually make that problem, that program more complicated and give you more bugs to deal with, right? Um, but it's, it's still an approachable thing in that context because if you're even thinking about optimizing things, you probably have a good understanding of the program and, and it's at least kind of under control. The, the problem that we have now is um, most software is being written by people who don't even really know what it's doing or what it's supposed to do 
And they don't even really, you know, it's built out of these building blocks that they don't even really know what those do. And you kind of slap them together until it kind of does something, right? And then the reason the thing is really slow is not even because it's not optimized. It's like we're in a different realm where it's more like the software is is pessimized. It's not that it's not optimized. It's like it's made with things that are so absurdly slow if you stop to think about it that like nobody would ever from first principles do that. Yes. It's like you had to you had to almost go out of your way to make it this slow. Except um you know, the reason it just happened was because nobody even felt qualified to think about it, right? And so there's some weird U-shape. So, so pessimization is also a sign that the software is more complicated than it needs to be. Um, because there's all these interacting systems. It's like somebody heard that there was a system that, you know, you could send an RPC message over the network and sort things and get a thing back. And then the things are sorted. And they use this to like sort 10 integers or something. And it's like, okay. This is a massively overcomplex, very slow way to do something that you could have done much quicker and much more reliably, like with an old school function call, but the programmer who did this just didn't didn't have the presence of mind and the experience to know the difference between these things. And that example is, that's an actual real example that I've heard of. I, ha I haven't seen that one with my own eyes, but like th these things freaking happen all the time. Um, so... There's like a domain in which, because software is so messed up, we could make it much faster and much more simpler and reliable at the same time. And it's just strictly better. But then after some point, you kind of get to the bottom of the curve. And then if you want it to go faster, it maybe starts getting more complicated. And it's a question mark about, is it worth making it more complicated in order to make it faster? But um, the, the problem is that people think that that's where we are is like near the bottom of the curve where it's like, Oh, optimization is hard and complicated. And it's, it's actually, no, we were there like 30 years ago. Now we're in this place where like what actually makes it hard and complicated is the fact that it's nobody understands what's going on and it, and therefore it's super slow and optimize the first step in optimizing is understanding what is going on in the first yes. place that will also solve problems. So like everybody just needs to like put down their pencils and stop and just start understanding what is going on. And then we can fix some problems. It's also an issue that just wouldn't be nearly as pronounced if the people who were writing the code were writing for lack of a better term, performant or optim automatically optimized code that started out fresh from the womb as it were ready for the job without too many side effects. Or if there are side effects, they were second or third order that hopefully aren't too intense, yeah. but you kind of planned for the major issues already when you started working on your initial layout or whatever the, the, the thing may be. And um, I, I've got a few people who have programmed or currently are programmers within specifically software companies and games design firms. And uh, what I hear from them is that oftentimes they're instructed to essentially not have functions that exceed maybe 10 lines or something to that effect, right? So these more, these very arbitrary standards because people are afraid of, you know, maybe, I don't know if they're writing Visual Studio in an upper left window box that's like super minimized, then maybe their function scrolls off the screen or something. I, I can't imagine why you would well, want to reduce it to that the, level. The 10 line thing is something that actually some people get taught in school. Okay. Right. And it's absurd. Like, um, I mean, just so people know where I'm coming from, in the witness, there's at least one function that's 8,000 lines long. 
Um, but uh, where that comes from is, you know, because we don't really know what we're doing with software, people are at least kind of trying. And they maybe have the best of intentions, but yes. they're maybe trying sometimes in a non-reality-based way. Like, imagine you're a professor at a school and you need to teach the students how to program well. Most of these professors at these colleges have programmed much less than like the average video game industry programmer. Right? Okay. And so they don't necessarily have, they're not tempered by the fire of like 80 hour weeks for 10 years or whatever. Right. And so, but they've programmed some and they've made some observations and like, maybe they saw some long functions one time and it seemed confusing. And so, Hey, if you have a short function, you can look at all the things that are there and understand what it does. And, and so then if you have these really simple building block, that's only 10 lines, then you put them together like Legos and you have a really simple program. And they don't think about the fact that like, actually several things happen when you decide to do that. Yes. A, you've got all this invisible webbing. That's the control flow of like all the functions being put together. Right. Um, that like, you now have to understand that and that's invisible, right? If you have a function listed out, you can at least look at that and read the steps and see what's happening. Whereas if something is like distributed invisibly in like the call graph of a program, that's actually harder to understand. And then B, by the time you get down to like 10 lines, because you're stringing these things together, some of those lines are just calling the other functions that are 10 lines that you had to factor out of this one, right? And so then like five of that 10 lines is overhead. And so you're talking about your program being like 50% or more overhead at some point. Just to, It's like it, the, the 10 line thing is especially absurd, right? But it's a, it's a more specific example of people are just trying to come to grips with this fact that software is complicated and hard to make. And let, let's give you some rules about how to do it well because, well, I, they think they're doing the right thing when they do that, right? But the problem is they're not the right rules. It's not reality-based enough, and it actually makes software worse, right? So here's a thing, right? Um, I think I said this in the speech you alluded to before, but probably most viewers of this haven't seen that. Um, actually, maybe I didn't say it. I said it somewhere. Um, you know, so, so software industry has been mainstream since like the seventies around the seventies is when like business applications started getting sold to businesses. Right. And then just software became a bigger and bigger thing every year since then. Right. Still getting bigger, which is crazy. Uh, since software became mainstream, there have been all these rules evolving over time about how you're supposed to program. Right. And they've changed. And, and gotten more elaborate, right? So at first it was like structured programming, which is actually a pretty good idea, which was just like, you know, your programming language should have like blocks of code and if statements and while loops and stuff. It shouldn't be just like machine code with jumps all over the place. That That is, all of these things actually start with correct, correct deductions because that's how the, the things get established as correct, but then they always get extrapolated too far, right? So then, then you have, I don't know, you have various programming paradigms and to pick one ancestry of them, you end up with like, okay, well, object-oriented is even more structured than structured programming. And you can do all, have this whole conversation about why object-oriented is 
is better. So obviously this is what you should do. Right. Right. And then, you know, object oriented isn't quite enough. So like, here's like modern, you know, like modern C plus plus, for example, is like a descendant of this object oriented C plus plus where like all sorts of crazy stuff is going on all the time. That's very complicated and very hard to understand actually, but the justification is all that it makes it simpler and easier to understand. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a functional programming lineage uh, and all these things. But you can look at these ever more complicated and ever more elaborate prescriptions of how you should program, right? And like, if all those worked really well, then how come software is so bad is the question, right? If these were the right rules, shouldn't software be good now? Because we've had all these freaking rules, right? If they worked... Why don't the programs work, right? And it's like nobody just even stops and asks that question. It's very frustrating. Yeah, well, uh, there's a ton of places we could go from this. Uh, I am reminded of garbage in, garbage out. Ironic, since it's sure. usually circulated within programmer uh, yeah. schools yeah. And, and whatnot. So kind of funny that that saying rings true in this context uh, when we're talking about programs and programmers. Um, I will say, so... Something that I'm interested in is there's a quote that in general, I think, can dovetail this conversation back to something we talked about earlier, which is uh, good art is born from limitations, which obviously is one way of looking at the idea of creating something. I have seen this within games specifically as uh, if you put it another way in a less charitable way, developers who can't screw up as much make generally better or perhaps not as bad products. Um, not sure what your thoughts are on if we went really deep on the, the essence of the quote or the, the saying, but I'm coming from specifically now game design and, and sort of switching gears away from programming. When I look at, um, so I told you that I was in very invested into brood war and I hold the first party content for that game, the single player content as well as a lot of the multiplayer maps and other things, but it's a bit of a different school. Uh, as far as design goes, I hold those in, in great contempt for being so far from, essentially, like, they, they show a lack of understanding of what the game could be or what it turned into, obviously, and, and in many respects, I think it's like a an allusion to the idea that maybe the developers at Blizzard uh, caught lightning in a bottle and didn't really know what they had when they had it. And only later on would go on to figure out what was going on with that. Or, or maybe they didn't figure it out as I think the StarCraft II content kind of shows. Um, but they could, they only had so many ways that they could manipulate the game flow that they perhaps stumbled into, perhaps deliberately made. I'm sure it's equal parts or at least partially both uh, with Brood War. They only had so many things they could change because of the limitations of their tool set. And then StarCraft II rolls around and before that Warcraft three. And if you're following the RTS sort of chain, becomes less and less like a game where you're commanding an army, especially with Warcraft 3, where the scale was very small because they were, uh, for among other things, they were really struggling with engine performance in a 3D environment. And StarCraft 2 didn't change that, but at least you could get, at least if there are no AI on the battlefield, you could get larger battles uh, with, with all human players. And I mean, even that's kind of contentious, but the, the idea is that they were able to achieve a higher scale than at least Warcraft 3. So if you're just comparing it from that, it's an upgrade in terms of scale, but it also came with a plethora of tools with which they used to apply more gimmicks and to work backwards into situations that they wanted to design for the sake of the story. And this is, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about story before this is over because 
Uh, I'm also somebody who thinks that most of the stories end up coming at the expense of the gameplay. And as a result, the expense of the players, sort of like the developer respect for the player. So to wrap this all up into a question, uh, do you think it's generally true as a result of it being like good art is born from limitations in the sense that if, if we look at it with this more negative prism, perhaps this less charitable prism, that the reason why older games or more limited games were generally better or more respectful of the player than the ones that would come after that, even within the same franchise or from the same developer are because the tool set didn't allow them to screw up as much. Or do you think there's a deeper truth hidden in there that we could use to improve our general, like the, the way that we look at games as critics or as even just general consumers? You know, uh, so I'm I'm definitely familiar with the phrase that good art is born from limitations, and I don't I don't doubt that it's probably true, um, but it's like never the way that I personally thought about things. Um, I mean, I I do tend to so maybe this is a different way of imposing limitations, right? But I do tend to in my games um, focus on what I think is the most interesting part and yes. like prioritize that above everything else. Right. And that's not really a limitation because we could do other stuff, but it's like, no guy, like this is what's important. We're going, we're going this way. Um, so I'm not sure that I have a lot of experience in the kind of can't screw things up domain that you're talking about. Okay. Although I wouldn't doubt that that's, I wouldn't doubt that that's a thing. I will say that the thing that you mentioned that, uh, that is a really interesting phenomenon to me, and I, I haven't quite come to grips with it, actually, is in a lot of creative media, and I think, I think this definitely happens a lot in games, but I've seen it in like TV shows and movies and stuff. You get people who make something that's kind of amazing, right? And they don't seem to understand why it's good. And then they just kind of crap all over it, right, yeah. accidentally. Or just, like, do a bad, like, somehow. And it's very weird because maybe it means it was kind of luck. Or maybe, you know, maybe it was a group of people who did the thing and the person who really was driving the interesting part, like, left. Or who, who knows, right? It, maybe it's different situations in different places. But this happens it seems like it happens really often. It seems like a lot of things that are good are like this. Um, and it's, it's weird to me. It's actually a little bit disturbing to me because I thought, um, I thought people were better at things than they actually are. Okay. Um, and the problem is societally, um, it's weird because I think culturally we have some attitude. There's some sector of culture that wants to believe that, people can't actually be exceptional or smart or wants to believe that good things are always a mistake in some way. I and see. it's hard to explain why we have that, but we definitely have that, um, in our culture. And, um, it is kind of true sometimes actually, <laughs> but the fact that it's true sometimes doesn't mean that it's true all the time. Right. Like I, you know, again, I'm a firm believer, like the entire model of my company is, we decide what we're doing. Um, we work really hard to make a specific thing because we think that that's going to be a good thing in specific and that we know something interesting to do, which means it's not a mistake, right? Yes. It's not like, it's not like we're going to start making a game and then see what seems fun and then make the most fun thing. It's like, no, we know what the game is and we're just going to hammer on it till it's good. 
Um, but but I, I definitely have seen this thing where it's like people make something that's kind of brilliant and so you think they get it and then they follow it up and it's like terrible, right? Yes. I I can't I wish I I wish I could explain that better, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe the counterfactual, I mean, it's kind of impossible to think of because they would have had to release the part one earlier in software or no, they would have to release part two earlier in software life and then follow it up in the future somehow, which doesn't uh, obviously isn't even possible because of the fact that we're trying to almost put the performance or the development process or the, just the products themselves in a bubble outside of the technological advances and whatever else may have happened in the company alongside of it, which, I mean, that's like part and parcel of a developer's process or a designer's process is the, like I've, in, in my own personal conception of it, it's like whatever you release is a crystallization, at least in part of your skills at the time, plus like not just your skills as a designer in a vacuum, but also your skills as a designer with the environment that you were working within, uh, which would be like if you're working within a certain engine or you're working within a certain company or whatever whatever resources you had at the at the any given time. And so when you put those two together, and that's sort of what's reflected back at you when you look at a product of somebody who's of a designer or of a development team, whatever might be the case. And what I often find is, I mean, I, I went through a, a brief phase where um, maybe for about a year or so, I was very upset with the idea that if you looked at any of my old work, I would I would really hate it if people thought that that was what I was capable of in the current time, sure. right? And so yeah. if like I, I went through a very, very brief phase of trying to update everything that I had put my name on in the last X years. Right. And so I was, I was sort of ch like running away from the idea that, well, actually it's just a representation of how good I was at the time. Plus what the state of the environment was and maybe some other environmental factors I didn't have control over. And then you take a step away from that and you think like, okay, well, does this scale up to actual like triple a funded teams as opposed to one guy in his bedroom working on a mod or whatever the case may be. Um, and I feel like it probably does to some degree, but I think the environment becomes a much more imposing factor in the, in the argument because you no longer, like I could theoretically just work until either it's done or I can't work anymore for some other reason. And then like, I, I don't have a, I'm not answering to somebody for money as far as related to this game, you know, and I yeah. work a day job to pay the bills and then I eventually it's done. But these teams can't do that. They don't have that luxury. So they have to get it in within a, a window. And even if that window often expands over and over again beyond what the initial specification was because they push it back. I mean, Cyberpunk 2077 was a more recent example of this phenomenon where they kept pushing it back and then it still wasn't finished when they released it. And I don't even know if it's finished now. I haven't kept up with it. But the a lot of that happens. And it's like, how much do you weigh the environment, which would be the limitations in the good art is born from limitations quote, uh, if we wanted to call it that, versus like what you're focused on. So you described you focus on something and you establish like maybe artificial limitations or a boundary where you're like, okay, maybe it's not as binary as we will not cross this boundary, but like, this is what our, what mo our game is mostly about. And this is what our work is mostly going to be focused on. And as a result of this focus, we will continue working in this vein. Right. And that's mm -hmm. how, like, we'll just go as deep as we can on that until the product is finished. But it does feel like, Maybe this is one of the reasons why I'm interested in your perspective on sequels as well, which maybe we can segue out of this quote and into that. Uh, if you're interested, the what I'm interested in is like 
and maybe maybe this is changing as time goes on, but I'm I'm very much interested in in creating a, a, a original fiction world that I can then explore like countless stories in, and theoretically like it wouldn't really be sequels because it would all be within the same game, but there'd be like twenty or more like lengthy, maybe ten hour or more experiences you could play from an RTS perspective, and so that's like the single player content that I'm going to be working on, but it's, there's also a massive multiplayer component. So it's not just that, but that's like a big part of it. And that's maybe one of the main reasons why I'm doing it in the first place. But I've noticed that you don't seem to put too much ideas into like, you, you haven't put that much stock in doing something like braid two or the witness two. And a lot of that, I think, and maybe you can tell me where I'm wrong on this is that you're most interested in things that will push your, like, like the, that are at the edges of your comprehension that you still need to work on in order to understand so there's like these ideas that you don't fully grasp yet in some way, and you can find out more about that by exploring it through the act of making the game. And then when the game is made, maybe that's not the end of your exploration of the concept, but it is as far as you wanted to go at that moment. And then you found another idea or some other thing happened where you decided not to explore it. Or if you wanted to explore it again, you would do it in another game instead of a sequel. Like, is that accurate to your, your idea? Yeah, I think that's mostly accurate, but I will say, um, it also does depend on the game and the particular thing that you were thinking about or that I was thinking about or working on. Cause I don't know if anybody else's process is this way. Sure. But like with braid, when I finished it, I was like, I don't, I don't even know what braid two would be. Yes. Right? If I were to make one, it would simply have been a cash grab related to, to, to uncharitably give an uncharitable term to it. Right. Um, and I didn't want to do that, right? It would have been the best business decision, absolutely, was to make more levels for Braid and release Braid 2, right? But it wasn't, it wouldn't have been a good decision in terms of just like development of what I'm thinking about games and what kind of projects we're working on and all that. You know, similarly with The Witness, I don't know. I mean, I could come up with some more The Witness puzzles. Mm. But the point of the game wasn't really the specific puzzles. It was like to put this whole thing together. It was like to make a, a higher level construct and like, okay, we did that. Extending that construct a little bit more by making a sequel is like not that interesting compared to the thing that we did. And so again, it would have just been a commercially motivated thing and it would have been a good commercial decision again to make a witness to, but we didn't do it. Um, and. It, but, you know, with the puzzle game that we're making right now, um, I actually, I could see a way, a way to make a sequel that is interesting. Um, will we do that? I don't know. Because, I, I mean, this one's taking a long time, but part of that is that we're building the engine and all sure, this yeah. stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that, you know, sequels are inherently not interesting or whatever. It's just like, they weren't, they weren't interesting for those two games. Okay. Right. That I did. But, um, you know, there's one project that I've had simmering off on the side for a long time. That's very deliberately, uh, meant to be not exactly sequelized, but extended and expanded over time, you know, where we just go keep revisiting the same thing and let's add this thing on over here and that thing on over there. And, and it, it becomes bigger. Um, 
so I think that could be very interesting, right? If, if the creative idea that you have is something about making a big world that you iterate on, then that's, that's totally a reasonable thing, right? Um, you just haven't yeah. maybe found a, an environment or a world or something, a concept that would maybe preserve your interest so far from the games you've released that would well, like, I mean, work it's, that way. So different people are interested in different kinds of things, right? And so some people really like world building, for example, yes. like fictional world building or something, right? Or um, that never was super much my thing. Like, I think that's cool, right? Um, but it's not like if I sit down to make a video game, that's not what I get hyped about and like where all my mental energy goes, sure. right? But for other people, that might be what where they go with it, right? And that's just a different creative process and will lead to a different result. And that's good because that's why we have different people making things, right? It's because they make different things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the interesting thing about video games, broadly speaking, is because they're kind of Video games are kind of intangible, right? It's like if you have a computer running some code over and over, like that's a video game sort of. And it could be all sorts of different things, right? And the fact that it's such a malleable or it's such a substrate with so many possibilities means that um, there's so many different things we can, can do with that. And I think we should be uh, trying to explore as many different avenues um, as we can uh, to see where games can go. So, one, you know, one thing that I've been thinking lately, you know, I grew up reading a lot of science fiction books, right? It's fiction, uh, you know, a lot of these are like heavily world building things. Yes. Um, some of them are like cool short stories, but some of them are like, you know, here's five books that all expound on, on different things. And that's, you get this kind of like big architecture from reading those five books that you don't, get from a shorter thing. And that's interesting. And that was something that that medium of science fiction would do, especially science fiction as opposed to regular fiction, because it's like, we're postulating some what if question, and then we're building out all the consequences of that what if over time. And that's interesting, right? And what I was thinking of was like, you know, video games are sort of really the new version of that in some way. Like they're more inherently about that because to make a, a video game world, like the world has to kind of function, right? And that's a little bit more of a serious thing. Like I go back and read some of the old science fiction stuff that I liked when I was a teenager or whatever. And like, honestly, a lot of it's not very good. Some of it's still very good, but a lot of it is not. Some of it is completely unreadable. Um, is there an and example of something specific from, I don't know, you don't need to necessarily name I, books. Or I, this year I reread a few novels in a series and I'm not going to say what it is because I don't sure. want to like, try, but it was horrible. Was there it something was, specific in there is what I was getting at. Like what, what was there an example, like a, something you could point to is like sort of like the master chief halo animation example I gave about. Bones. No, I mean, what I would say is a more broad thing, which is that like, okay, the, the interesting part of science fiction is supposed to be this postulation of a world where, you know, 
there's some kind of advancement has been made or whatever. And what does that mean? How does the world or the universe work once, you know, and if I go back and read some of these things that were written earlier, especially, um, they like, don't really do that. Like they do a tiny amount of that in a couple places. And like a lot of the rest of the book is just kind of this happened and then that happened and that happened. And it's not really, um, Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think there's this way in which, because we didn't have much for entertainment back then, <laughs> like okay. compared to today, sure. like things that weren't that good just sufficed. They, they seemed really good because they were what we had, you know? But like, if you think about, you know, video games today, like if you think about science fiction video games, here's where I think we're falling down as an industry. Because all that we know, if you're going to, like, if you think of what's a science fiction, uh, like, franchise, even franchise is a weird name because that's like McDonald's, right? Sure, it's yeah. like, you don't, you don't say, like, science fiction novel franchise, like, or yeah, maybe yeah. people do now because you it's would say like a compendium or series or something, right? Yeah. yeah, it's something more respectable. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. It's, I'm not making French fries when I, but, um, so, it, but you take a video game franchise, right? And so I think of something like Mass Effect or whatever, sure. right? Where there's some series of games and they're, they're doing world building and stuff, but honestly, the things that are creatively science fictionally world building about Mass Effect are all just fiction. They're the fiction part of the game. The game part of the game doesn't really do that, right? The game part of the game is like, well, you're going to land on a planet and shoot some dudes. And like, that's kind of the same in all the games. We've added some very, we've added very small amounts to it, but we haven't done this world building thing, right? We've just like, you know, uh, the, the fiction is advancing and that's not really taking advantage of video games very much. It's Agreed. like, we're yeah. leaning on the fiction. We're being influenced mostly by the fiction. And then we're adding a little part. And I would like to see games flip that so that the game is really doing the thing. And then the fiction is there as well. Cause if you have a fiction, you want it to, to be an equal and good participant. But like, I want to see the game part of the game step up. So like if there was an RTS series, for example, I've, I've never been a huge RTS person. So, okay. you know, more about them than me, but sure. like, you know, imagine you start your series with like, here's, here's an RTS and it's, you know, kind of maybe a little bit straightforward, but it's like good and solid and it establishes how a certain set of mechanics works. Right. And then you add a thing onto it, which is like, now this happens. And then now we have this new thing and it fits together with the old thing and it makes a bigger, more complex world. It's not like we removed the world from book one and then now we're in book two okay, and it's yes. just different. It's like, we're building on it and making a bigger universe of like all the things that could happen, you know, when whatever the mechanics are that are in this thing interact and then part three introduces, I don't know, maybe it was all ground conflict and now you have aerial things and the way the aerial things work interacts in a well-defined way with the ground. Like what you can imagine an ever expanding universe like that. Um, 
which is kind of more like what the fiction does. Because like we, we think about fiction being chronological, right? But when we're reading the middle of book three, like our brains connect that with book one. And like we understand how the thing in book three is related to the thing in book one. It's not just a thing that happened later, right? But in video games, we seem to make it just the thing that happened later. Like I, I see what you're saying. Okay, there's yeah. two there's two big things that I could say about this, and I guess I'll just try to remember the second one because the first one's definitely sure. gonna start us on a another conversation thread. So if we okay. take the Mass Effect example, um, yeah. you mentioned that the the fiction advances, but the game stays the same. And another thing that I've definitely ad- observed of RPGs specifically is that they almost try to like the gameplay designers don't necessarily coordinate with the story designers, or if they do, it's not in a productive way for this particular problem to be resolved. And as a result, you'll get a game designer idea that goes in and it says, uh, if you, you know, push this button or you do this action, you can like teleport to the enemy and then melee attack them or something. And then that is like actually leveraging something that wouldn't be possible without like, I guess you could do it in a fantasy world, but like it has to be somewhat fantastical either through science fiction or some other magic. And that's like leveraging the fiction through the game in a sort of way, but that's entirely optional because RPGs have to support like a bunch of different play styles. And Mm -hmm. the other things that we support don't leverage the fiction. I mean, if you really read through a lot of the lore, you might find out that, for example, the in the first game, uh, the reason why you don't have to reload is because you've got these like giant chunks of lead inside your gun, which are sliced off very small, precisely, and then fired out as like a cannon projectile or like a railgun type thing. And that's why you don't have to reload. And like, it's almost impossible that you would ever run out of ammo in the lead because it's literally just superheated lead. And then for some reason in the second game, they, because they, I guess they decided you should reload, they swapped that out and I don't know what their justification was, but now you've got like regular reloading. So like even between the two games, we have a disconnect, but even knowing that doesn't change the actual interaction of shooting, even if it was still leveraging the fiction, because you're still just shooting. And I guess maybe overheating might be a way to, to tie that in as a gameplay system, but it's not my observation of your complaint is that it's not exactly like it, it's not leveraging the mechanic in a way that sets your or not leveraging the fiction in a way that sets your game apart on a mechanistic level as the player interacts with the game world in a different way. And another thing that I think is really unfortunate about Mass Effect specifically is that a lot of the world building comes through reading these codex entries, uh, some of which are narrated and some of which aren't, but don't really offer you any benefit as far as I understand. Like, you know more about the world, but that's the end of it. So I still wouldn't really like it if I had to go reading to understand certain aspects of the world. But if I did get a benefit of like knowing which kinds of things to say to this alien species to get on their good side and get them to like complete a quest for me or join my party or something, and that gets me ahead in the game, then I'm like interacting with the fiction and like that's actually provably improved my uh, set up and I can use that as like a strategy or something, right? Or maybe I read and I find out like this is another very basic example, but like, oh, they, th- this enemy has a weak spot in this spot if they're this alien type. And I know that because I read now. And I still don't think that's like great, but at least you have that interaction between the fiction and the game, like the player themselves. And so now you've gotten something for engaging with the fiction. You can use that in the game. And that's still not even what Mass Effect does because those examples aren't even in there. I mean, they might like describe stuff that's already super obvious just from observationally looking at an enemy, like, oh, I have to shoot it in in its head or something. But at that point, it's no different than all of the other shooters, right? So essentially, like, 
what, I mean, I guess the question really is, is what would you, like, would there be, is there an easy example of like a counterfactual? Because something I've observed a lot is when I'm trying to make like compelling RTS content, there's a huge amount of people who say like, oh, if it's single player and it's against AI or it's like skirmish against AI, like that's just boring. And the only way to make it not boring is to make the AI like super powerful and then no human can compete with it. And I'm like, well, no, there's like a ton of different ways you could, you know, go between the lines. You can make the AI not cheat as much as it like, if, it, if it's a computer player, it's never gonna get tired and it's gonna be really good at like micromanaging and multitasking. But a player can do those things to some degree of competence and they only have to play maybe one game if they want to. So they don't like endurance doesn't factor into it. So there's all these different things that a player can still compete with if you make the AI actually engage with like the same core mechanics that the player is. And I, you don't necessarily know this as an, somebody who's outside of the RTS world, but like almost every single AI in RTS games at a high difficulty level just cheats. Or even, for example, I talked about Brood Wars campaign, they just start out with like 20,000 resources, which is like an absurd amount, and you probably won't run out of that. And yeah. um, they also don't even use it. So like they, they start out with like half the map under their control or more, and then you're they're just an objective and you like slog through them until the game is over, and that's like it. So that's the mission for most of the, the time you're even playing as an RTS, and then other times you're like, controlling one dude in a micro mission or something. So there's like these very different things that don't really in, like the conceit within an RTS for a lot of people is that if you play the single player, it doesn't prepare you at all for multiplayer. And then you just get your, your ass handed to you over and over again by people who have been are better at the game than you. And I think that's true in like quake and other games as well, but you at least know how to like shoot the guns and move. And you yeah. don't even like in the RTS game, you don't even really learn that because you just learn that if you like, uh, ignore the enemy attack waves and like repost them over and over again for like 10 minutes, you can always win just by like killing them. And that's like not a salvageable mechanic or a strategy in a multiplayer sense. So to bring us back to Mass Effect, it's like, it feels like there's no counter example. Like I haven't played an RTS game where they've not gone down that route for single player content. So do you think that there is a counter example of leveraging the fiction in a game world, uh, maybe specific to sci-fi, in a way that this Mass Effect issue that we just discussed doesn't happen. You know, I'm not really sure. Like, no, no real example is jumping to mind. Um, I think, though, like what I was even talking about before is even simpler than that. Because okay. sort of what you're talking about here is, is actually pretty hard to do um, in the sense that it's like, okay, it's a video game. You want it to have a uh, pretty complicated and interesting involved gameplay. And you want it to have some interesting fiction that people can get into and all that. And those two things have to cooperate and interoperate very well, right? And um, I think that's pretty hard. And I think it's hard enough that people don't even try usually okay. in part in part because they don't have other examples of it being done. So like people, you know, a lot of designers probably just don't even know what that looks like, you know, because it's just not the tradition of games that, that they grew up in. But even what I was saying before is even one step simpler than that, because it was, I, I mean, maybe, maybe you would end up turning it into the same thing, but kind of what I was saying was in the way that fiction is complex and just highly dense and connected over time if you read like this series of novels or something. Um, when games do sequels, even the gameplay doesn't really do that. It's like the gameplay maybe adds one or two things. Or right? set pieces, it's like, right, yeah. 
it's like, what's the minimum amount of gameplay change that we could do and still do the next thing? And it, it isn't complex and connected in that way. And so you could imagine doing that without even doing this kind of connection between the story and gameplay that, that you're talking about. Now, I think it's better if you do the thing that you're talking about as well, but I also think that, that it's actually pretty hard because... Um, like, it's hard to say very specific things about this because it changes a lot based on what kind of game it is and, yes. and what kind of story it is even and all that. But the problem is, so even, so good storytelling is not that easy, right? Just being a good storyteller, just in fiction before you yes. come to games, it's not that easy. And you can tell because there's lots of bad storytelling out in the world. Um, so telling stories well, you need to like work at telling the, the good story, right? And when there are influences that pull you away from telling the good story, it inhibits the ability to do that. So like in a game, if you felt like you had to overly explain, I don't know, something in the game or like, like the, the, the onus of having to connect to things in the game all the time can be a drag on the storytelling such that you're no longer like able to do the, the best version of storytelling that you can. It can do that. Um, maybe it doesn't have to, but like we haven't figured out the video game tradition of how to do that very well then if it doesn't have to, right? And so, you know, we end up with all these games with what I think, I mean, people are free to disagree with me, but I think storytelling in video games is mostly very bad. Like just compare it to like a really good movie or you know, a really good novel or something. And the story in the game is just like, w you wouldn't bother to read it if it were a 500 page novel, right? Because not that much happens. It's not that interesting. It's very much like other games that you've played. Um, and so why is that? Well, because we just, part of it is we just haven't done a good job, but part of it is also, this other thing, which is as a medium, <laughs> there's several things. As a medium, if you're gonna integrate story with games, that's actually pretty hard. Um, and because it's hard, it would be interesting to have more people working on it, uh, which we don't have enough people working very hard on that, right? But also, um, you know, I, I do a bunch of speeches and I've given some speeches in the past about like why it's also, um, a little bit of a self-sabotaging pursuit where like the, the fundamental facts of what makes a game a game and the fundamental facts of what makes good fiction, good fiction. Um, those don't, those like can intersect, but there are large pieces of each of those that are disjoint from each other. And so that what that means, if you're trying to do storytelling is there are lots of things that are not available to you unless yes. you either constrain the game or constrain the story. And if you're going to say it's my job to do good storytelling, but I'm not allowed to have 80% of the storytelling techniques, it's like, well, 
that's ob by definition, then that's hard. Although, like, as you were saying earlier, maybe it's that good art is born from limitation and maybe you need to go with that 20% of techniques. It's not even 20. It's like, it's like it's very 50 or 60%. It's, it's just not all of them. Right. Um, you know, but on the other hand, maybe we have other things that pertain to storytelling that we haven't explored very thoroughly yet as a medium that could add, right, and that aren't very easily done in a novel or a film. Like, it's hard to say. And, like, I just don't feel like we've done a very good job thinking seriously about these things. So this takes me, yeah, this takes me to my second big point that I was going to make after the Mass Effect example came up. And so I think, you know, as well as anybody else, that environments can tell a massive amount of story in the sense that sure. maybe they don't establish, they can establish fiction, but they might not establish fiction or world building in the same sense that you're, we're used to. But I, I mean, an obvious example is if you see, uh, I don't know, it's your average war game. You walk over to a corner and it's got like debris on it and maybe like a chunk of a wall is missing and you're like, oh, there must've been an explosive that went off here, right? And so you've already in your head imagined what kind of event had to happen in this area in order to for it to result in that way. And now if we extrapolate that out, when we see a film and we see a similar example or we read a description in a book about something like that, that is, I think a like the book and then the movie are bad or maybe not, so not as well-equipped and slightly better, but still not as well-equipped to show environmental storytelling as games are. Because in games, not only, assuming you have like the ability to move around freely in a three-dimensional environment or even a two-dimensional environment, in games you have the unique ability to uh, what would be like rewinding the book or movie or like turning mm -hmm. the page back, but also opening, turning the page forward and then seeing a different story or more details than you saw before, because now you can take a look at it from a different angle or you can, uh, add more, you know, you can scar the environment some way, or you can, I mean, maybe plant a, a farm or something. Right. So there's like things you can do in a game that are completely different to how you can, uh, really engage with something like an environment. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think you, you accurately describe the worlds as, being like their functionality is paramount. Otherwise you're going to be in a really tough spot. Like if the, if the world doesn't function, then like the player can't like by definition, cannot engage with the world as intended. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So with a, with a book, you can go rewind the book and yes. read earlier parts again, but it's like not very natural to it. People usually don't do that. You don't necessarily have the ideal experience if you were to do that, right? And so this is the sort of thing that, that a game does more naturally, is it lets you, like if you imagine a game that had a lot of this kind of environmental storytelling, um, you can notice different aspects of it, right? Different players may notice different aspects of it. Uh, you can spend more time on some of it and less time on other of it. Um, you can draw your own conclusions in a way that is harder in written fiction and, you know, maybe film lets you do that a little bit more. Um, there are these aspects of it that are pretty interesting, right? And uh, that said, we honestly don't have that much in the way of games that really go all out on environmental storytelling and like lean on it. Actually in The Witness, that was going to be 
one of the big things about the game was we were going to do a lot of that stuff. And we ended up not really doing, there is some built into the world, but it's like very, very, very backgrounded. And the reason was, you know, if you put like this room where all this stuff happened, all that stuff looks interactive and like it might be part of a puzzle. Right. And it's yes. confusing yeah. for the puzzle gameplay. It just wasn't the right game to do that stuff. I don't think I'm maybe I could have figured out a way to do it, but we ended up just not really doing it. Um, um, and you know, there are some of these, you know, the, the so-called walking simulator games, sure. a pejorative name for them, but, um, they tend to do a little bit more of that kind of thing, but they tend to also doing it while leaning on, like, there's a narrator also telling you everything. Right. And it's a little bit redundant at that point often. And so people don't seem to trust that you could have a lot of this environmental storytelling and just let it do its thing and let let that be the good experience for people and maybe again because we don't have a lot of examples of games really hitting it out of the park like doing that but maybe that just means somebody can make that game you know i think it's also really hard to rely on players or being like to trust the player for most developers this is difficult i don't subscribe to this theory myself but most developers yeah. i think accurately recognize that consumers are used to being handheld. And as a result, if they don't get handheld in a game, they'll think it's too hard or pointless or aimless or some other negative thing. And as a result, they won't get the intended message or any of the possible intended messages that would be satisfactory to whoever made the game. And so I think that's a big stumbling block. So when I, I have really strong opinions on tutorials and I know you do as well to some degree. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of it has to be very natural and like built in. And at the same time, similar to how I've heard you describe some of the storytelling in your game as opt out or like optional in some sense. Like you, I think you said at some point in the witness, you were planning on making like an optional or some stuff that you didn't have to engage with, but then you felt like the end user was like fighting the game to make it go away. And so you just decided to like do away with it entirely. And so uh, that is one of those things that to me, I actually applied to tutorials in a sense where like if you've, so I, I have, two tutorials planned for my RTS bona fide masterpiece that I'm working on, right? And the first tutorial is, I'm not sure if I'll even keep it, but it's attempting to like make the genre as a whole more accessible because my RTS is really doubling down and focusing entirely on like, you have to do things in real time. You have to do too many things for anybody to do, even the AI opponents that are like geared to be super powerful. And now, as a result, just like in Brood War, the goal is to make less mistakes than your opponent while also like strategically coming up with something that uh, somehow counters what they're doing, but not in like a prescribed hard counter way. It's just that you are doing something to defeat them in a way that like the game gives you the tools to do, but doesn't say like, oh, this tool counters this tool. It's not like rock, paper, scissors, right? So like the a lot goes into that to make that a reality. But the first tutorial is essentially saying like, if you don't know about RTS games at all, then you might want to play this because it will give you a an enemy that is going easy on you, but not in the sense that like, like it's still in fiction, it's still in universe. It's not a narrator telling you what to do. It's more like the, the veneer or the immersion ideally of you being plugged into a control matrix and then controlling units as a result of that is still upheld. And you're told that like, you know, your workers are dropping in and they'll harvest resources, just tell them what to do. 
And then like you're expected to sort of figure that out yourself. And so the there's no instructions that say like narrator says, right click on this unit to issue an attack command targeting that unit or something like that, right? It's it's almost like something that you, either you enable like verbose tooltips and you read at your own leisure or you like figure that out intuitively. And then the second tutorial is more of like a tutorial for the world and, and for some of the things that you should expect from the single player content. So it's like, I don't even really know if it could be described as a tutorial in the same sense. It's like an onboarding tool for me to say, you're gonna play as like the most familiar, because there's no humans in the universe, the most familiar, most human-like, if you wanna use that term, uh, like race, alien race, and uh, you'll be fighting mostly other members of your own and then we slowly build on complexity based on that, so like more aliens show up and then there's like more of a plot going on, but that's actually reflected in the story. So I won't get into all the details, but the reason I bring all this stuff up is the idea is to respect the player enough to expect them to, in the basic tutorial, figure out how a mouse and keyboard works. Like I'm not gonna just tell you, like you have to move your mouse to the outer bounds to like move your camera. Like you're expected to know that to some degree. And then uh, also like in the second tutorial, it's I'm not gonna tell you all of the details about everything because some stuff is gonna be obvious and then other stuff is gonna be emergent as you go. So the environmental storytelling plays a big part in the in the first mission. And then, I mean, it's gonna play a big part in all of them, but like later on, you'll see, oh, this enemy is using like more of this kind of unit than that kind of unit. And that should eventually start to trigger in your brain as like this unit is better for this strategy. But I'm not, I'm not saying this at any point and I'm not even like warning like, um, oh, prepare for an air assault. Like that's not a dialogue line, right? Because you'll see, like if you scout the enemy, you'll see air units. And if they attack you, you'll see them because they're attacking you. And then you'll realize, oh, some units can only be targeted by certain weapons and all this other stuff that comes like supernaturally if you've played the game, if you played RTS games or if you're playing this for the first time and like you lose to that. But the idea is that you can still lose even in the tutorial, which is like a totally foreign concept to most people. Like if you just sit there and do nothing and wait for the tooltips to pop up and they never do because that's not in the game, uh, the enemy will kill you because they're actually trying to win. They are trying to beat you. They just happen to be like super easy to uh, ward off in the early stages of the campaign. And then like, as you progress down, eventually things get harder and you have to really start trying. Even like if you're a seasoned uh, player, like even in the first couple missions. So the idea is that no matter what you do, you have to engage with the core game mechanics in order to find victory in the game. And that is something that I find nowhere else, no matter like really what the, well, maybe not nowhere else, but at least in RTS is nowhere. Never found that in like a single player environment. And then in other games, it's really rare and usually confined to like specific areas or the gameplay loop you're engaging with is really unsatisfactory. So it would be like in the Halo games at the highest difficulty, enemies just get more health and shoot faster. Like actually fa they never reload. So you don't have to, they don't have to worry about that. Whereas you do. So they're engaging with like a mechanic that in a different way or like some other system that's parallel to yours. And then the way to defeat them is to like carry around these two exact weapons out of like the 20 or so in the whole arsenal. And you can't win without those two weapons. And that's very unsatisfying because you're basically taking the entire sandbox and reducing it artificially based on some other rules. So I feel like at the end of the day, you either get games that don't respect the player insofar as they handhold them too much and then they serve an uninspired and just not very satisfying product as a result, or they give the player a challenge in sort of air quotes where the it's actually just like a grind to get through and it's not really yeah. satisfying or skill expressive. And in a way, yeah. so like when you express the play, like, so I've had this, I've, I've argued with these people, with a lot of people, including some of my closer friends about Half-Life, the Half-Life franchise. I actually feel like Half-Life is an uh, example of one of the first FPS games to really do things wrong in the campaign style, like in the actual single player story. And one of the ways they do this is by making it so that, especially in the second game, 
you're expected to go certain areas so that you can see certain shots of the engine that they built and like the cutscenes that they made. And you're essentially a cameraman for all intents and purposes in those moments. And then otherwise, like it could be any player playing the game and they might have like slightly more difficulty in some areas or they might do slightly better than I did in some areas. But otherwise, it's not really that different than some like me watching the playthrough online. And that's where I think I have the most, like I throw the most umbrage at a lot of games is because if there's no reason for me personally to actually play the game, like if, if me playing the game doesn't lead to anything different than anybody else, then why would I play as supposed to watch? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does this make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I am definitely, so when it comes to tutorials, um, I have become really interested in the idea of not really having so so this idea of hey i'm going to sit down and play a game mm -hmm. like you know back in the old days you know home computer games didn't really have tutorials because they sort of inherited they were sort of the home version of arcade games or whatever and arcade games didn't really have i mean once in a while they would have like a screen like pac-man has a screen that says like here's the different ghosts or whatever, but it's not what we would think of as a modern tutorial, right? And, and so then at some point, as these games got more complicated, people were like, oh shit, we sit people down in front of these and they just can't play them. Yes. So let's fix that by having this thing that you play called the tutorial, right? And that was sort of this pragmatic solution to this problem. And um, I've become much more interested in my own game, which is a specific genre so far i've been doing these puzzle games of like well because puzzle games are about increasing your understanding of things anyway then like why have like a tutorial per se why not just like ramp the game and you start out understanding the the baseline things and then you extend but your process of understanding things extends over the course of the entire game and it just gets more into like you graduate pretty quickly to things that are more interesting. Right. Um, so I've definitely tried to not lean on this concept of an explicit tutorial. I do feel condescended to by, by many tutorials of many games. Um, especially the ones that don't, like you say, teach you the things that you really want to know anyway. And yes. they're just like, I'm sitting here, like, I didn't need to know to press the left mouse button. Right. I need to know these other things that aren't even going to be discussed. Um, I now forgot what I was going to say. Cause we talked about a lot of things. I did throw a lot at you um, on that question for sure. It, it was a big, it was a big one. Um, oh yeah. So there's a lot of, so, you know, usually when games are the way they are, sometimes Sometimes it's just because we weren't imaginative enough in the industry, but sometimes it's what we would say is overdetermined, meaning there's a lot of different reasons why things ended up the way they are. And because if it was just one of these reasons, then other pressures might have pushed it into a different way and games would have evolved a different way. But when there's like five reasons, then it's not that surprising that things end up. And so, um, and again, this is not to justify it, but like the reason a lot of these tutorials end up very linear is. Um, for a multitude of reasons that all point in the same direction. One is just if you're just thinking in terms of like, I want to give the player the best experience from my game. Um, the temptation 
is to control that experience extremely because that's how you make sure it's the best, right? If you have something really cool happen in your game world and you're not pointing the camera at the thing at that time, they might not see it, right? And then they won't have the good experience, right? There's financial reasons, which is like, like I said a lot, a long time ago, um, you know, games are all competing with each other in terms of amount of stuff and how impressive they are. And um, if you spend your budget for the video game and all of that budget doesn't end up on the screen, then you effectively had a lower budget for your video game, right? Yes. And so there's this temptation to control it for that reason. Um, there's like, yeah, these games are complicated and people, um, we run these focus tests or user tests where we sit, bring people in and sit them down and they tell us they didn't understand about all these things. And so because we're a big team working on the game, here's a list of things that people didn't understand. And your job is to make sure that people understand these things. And what, what are you going to do? Right. And so um, all of this conspires to make like a very tight grip over like what happens. And the problem is, I think that, you know, part of the wonder of games, like you were saying, is that different outcomes can happen, yes. right? That's fundamentally what a video game is. And so if you end up killing that part of a video game um, in order to save it, right? Like that's, that's really a mistake. And um, again, I think as an industry, we don't take that seriously enough, um, you know, and I wish people did. I think, I think maybe that's a way that will evolve slowly over time. I think, you know, if you were to play a video game 50 years from now, if such a thing exists, um, I imagine it's probably seen as very uh, tedious to have to go through a pretend to, you know, especially in something like an RTS where it's like, it's very clearly about like winning or losing. Yes. Like something about, I feel like I, or I, even if it's not explicitly said that like you can't lose in this tutorial, you like know it's not somehow the stage is set so that it's not real, you know, and like it just doesn't feel like imagine you were gonna watch a, a, a movie and it's like an intense action drama, and the movie starts, and the first 10 minutes of the movie is like it, it, this is not really real and nothing that happens right now is going to matter. But like, we just want you to get used to the characters. Right. And like, okay, he's having a gunfight, but like, don't worry about it, man. Cause like, <laughs> it's like a nerf gunfight or something like who even knows. Right. Um, movies have another problem, which is that they're too much like, the pretend not real thing anyway, but, but you can imagine a good version of a movie. You wouldn't start the good version of the movie with that, but then somehow we do it in games. Right. Yes. And so, uh, I don't know. It's, there's a lot to figure out in games, which is part of what makes it interesting. Yeah. And I have a feeling we could, uh, we could talk for a lot longer on some of these subjects, but I am conscious it's, of time. So yeah, it's time for me to go. I think. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And I really appreciate you coming on and spending some of your um, very obviously valuable time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, is there any final message you want to impart from your time here or is that it? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, it, I guess maybe it's just that games are really interesting and there's a lot to think about. You know, we covered a, a number of different topics and sometimes the answers to these things are not simple or easy, but like that's, that's a challenge. 
And anyone who wants to step up and attack part of that challenge, um, maybe you could move something significant, right? And move things forward. And that's, that's a really good thing. Um, that said, uh, this should be done with ample respect for the difficulty of the challenge and why these problems exist, because it's very easy to come up with like a fake solution that's not real and, and won't actually solve anything. So, um, be mindful of that, but, but definitely like, you know, a lot of people who get into video games, especially early, it's people who are excited about games in some fundamental way. And that excitement is warranted and it's, um, it means that you see something about games that's like interesting. Right. And, um, yeah, like the, the trick is like, how do you develop that into your own personal, like not just aesthetic interest in what kinds of games you like, but that comes along with some kind of talent for seeing certain, certain kinds of th going way back to the very beginning. I was talking about having standards and, seeing what's what's not good enough right yes. and, and what should be improved and having different aesthetic interests automatically connects to that because it's like those aesthetic interests determine like where you look and and how you weigh things and what you prioritize and can determine what standard you bring to the table right and and that standard you bring to the table then determines what improvements you can make in games as a whole and like what we're doing and we certainly could use a lot of improvements so that i think is uh is where i'm gonna leave it there you go well said we at the no frauds club thank jonathan blow for his time i encourage you to join the club in our journey to make games that deliver on their promises see you next time